Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of The podcast in which a group of B-Side Hello and welcome back to B-Side I'm Tom, your host today And today on B-Side we'll be discussing Back to the Future Part 3 As well as Possibly the Terminator? We'll see. Um, see if we'll get into it. In this show today, what we're going to try and do is build on what we've been doing in past B-sides as well as past flagship shows. And that's going to be to look at these films, especially Back to the Future Part 3, but probably the whole trilogy and possibly the Terminator, through two main lenses. The first one we're going to discuss is nostalgia. The second is going to be identity and the fracturing of identity and how that relates to media construction. So let's dive in. I want to start by talking about an interesting article from S.D. Chorstowska. The article is titled, Consumed by Nostalgia? Question mark. And it's an interesting one. It's one I disagree with in terms of its worldview. She seems to be less celebratory of capitalism and consumerism than I am. But her argument, I think, fits very well into the themes we've been discussing the last few weeks on this show as well as the flagship. So let's dive in. I think in order to understand this article, though, we should backtrack and discuss her source. Her main source, or the person who's inspiring this article, I think influencing it the most, is George Frederick Philip von Hardenberg, better known as Novalis, which was his pen name. His years are 1772 to 1801. He had a very short life, and he published very little during his short life. But his work appeared often after he died. It was especially published by the, the very famous Schlegel brothers in their periodical, The Anthenaeum. And so let's take a look at the, the term romanticism itself, since the this Jena romantic group that Novalis was a part of, and the Schlegel brothers were also a part of, they, they termed themselves the Jena Romantics, Jena just being a city in Germany. And romanticism itself is a signal to a medieval past, to a world in which the individual is connected to traditions. The pre-modern, then, is something that has an organic unity. Everyone is bound together into a single understanding and goal. For the Yena Club, this organic whole is lost forever once the Enlightenment comes. The mark of modernity, then, is the fracturing of this whole. And you can think of this organic whole, I think, in terms of a feudal structure, where a peasant is bound to the land, a peasant comes from past peasants who are also bound to the land, everyone there shares a European, French, Norman, whatever tradition, everyone there shares a religion, language, etc., and that there's this kind of traditional connection everyone has to each other, even when you do have hierarchy and whatnot. And then when the medieval, excuse me, when the Enlightenment comes along, this ends, right? Suddenly everything is put into question, religion is put into question, hierarchy is put into question, governmental structures are put into question. 
Now, philosophy itself may offer self-reflection, as it had in the scholastic period, but it also reflects other modern conditions, namely fracturing. So philosophy has to take into account this kind of fracturing organic unity. And in order to properly capture modernity, then, what Novalis starts doing is he starts writing in what he calls philosophical fragments. These are short pieces of writing that allow form and content a closer merger. This also helps prevent philosophers or de-incentivizing philosophers from system building. What system building is, is creating a philosophy that explains everything. You could think of Kant, right, who has epistemology, he has pure reason, he has aesthetics connected together with ethics, it goes on and on, but it's a philosophical worldview that encompasses everything. Novalis doesn't really like this. The anaromantics uh, don't like this. They don't want unity in philosophy. What makes sense, considering the modern condition, is fragmentary. It's philosophy that reflects the, the fragmentary nature of the once unified whole. It's now broken apart. And I want to read you an example of one of Novalis's fragments. This is fragment number 95. Quote, Before abstraction, everything is one, but one like chaos. After abstraction, everything is united again, but this union is a free binding of autonomous, self-determined beings. Out of a mob of society has developed, chaos has been transformed into a manifold world. End quote. And you could see there that the fragment is very abstract, both in content and in style. Um, and it has a sort of poetic feeling to it or, or a poetic kind of tone. Um, it's, it's very mystical. It kind of connects the social to the kind of spiritual in a way. Um, it has this kind of Buddhist idea of everything being connected. I don't know if Novalis had read Buddhism texts or Eastern texts, but his work does have that spirit. And so these fragments would be published in the Antheneum, this German periodical that the Schlegel brothers published. And so you'd see a few of those inside its pages. Um, and you can imagine stumbling upon them and trying to make heads or tails of what Novalis's philosophy was. Furthermore, we also have um, Novalis's response to Fichte. And so there's one publication, Studies in Fichte. Uh, and for people who don't know, Fichte is Johann Gottlieb Fichte. His dates are May 19th, 1762, and he died on January 27th, 1814. And he's also a German writer and philosopher and a great inspiration for the Vienna Romantics. And so Novalis in his Fichte studies um, takes a look at Fichte and his concept of the I and not I. Now, we're getting further and further down this rabbit hole, but that's okay. That's the point of B-Side. It is a rabbit hole podcast. But what Fichte means by the I is that the I 
is that individual that that form that differentiates differentiates itself from the outside world. So the I is an immediate and divided, and it's immediate and divided from the not I. This is I, the, the single letter, the pronoun I. And so we have an I that defines itself, that makes itself a whole thing, a unity, by defining itself against something. Um, so Navalis, responding to this, sees the self as predicated on two irreducible sources of experience, thought and feeling. And so this I is able to then break away and separate itself from the not I through intellect and through emotion. Okay, let's getting more into Navalis now. For Navalis, a proper account of the self needs to consider the self's development through history. So taking from Fichte, taking from the I, the established I, then now we have to look at the I as it develops through history. And you could hear um, kind of Hegel in the background, right? This development of history. And, you know, this is, these are all the inspirations, if not the people Hegel was communicating. Um, and, and so you could see this philosophy developing. So this development of the I through history is now known as the Bildung and is a major idea uh, and if not the major idea in, again, Hegel's The Phenomenology of Spirit, right? The development of, of the person through history or the I or the, the self through history. So as the individual continues through history, he or she becomes more and more free. For the self to mature, according to Novalis, the self must interact with the community to see himself or herself as being part of the community and to be part of a more comprehensive historical development. Therefore, the tradition one feels he or she is a part of extends to the present and shapes the world of the individual. All right, so that's, that's kind of very lofty and very mystical. But basically what we're taking is this concept of the I as separating itself out and then developing, transforming through history and kind of connecting back in a way through, um, through tradition, right? And how those kind of shape the present individual. The past then should be reconstructed in order to guarantee relevance for the present by both helping us understand the present and also by offering an alternative historical framework. Okay, so that means then that we want to look back to the past, considering our modern fractured age, the, the age of modernity, the turn of the 18th into the 19th century. We want to look back to the past and remake it for the present, right? Recapture it because if we want to develop through history, we have to understand ourselves, the I, as connected to that past history. Now, I don't know if he means that we're going to reestablish an organic unity of the medieval era. I, I don't think that's what Novalis is saying. It's kind of hard to parse because his, his style is fairly esoteric, as I, as I think I've shown evidence of. But I do think an understanding of, to use a cliche, where we're going is predicated upon where we've come from. Um, now, this idea of an alternative historical framework, 
would allow us also, I think, more freedom to develop how we feel and how we want. I don't believe Novalis is saying that we're, we're sort of cogs in a historical machine, right? I, I think he is saying that human freedom comes from a recognition of the tradition into which you are embedded, a recapturing of it by looking to the past, but then allowing that individual to determine his or her future. Now, this future is obviously going to involve a development through history, right? Not a, a static sense of the eye, but it is still a development that the individual can engage in. Now, moving on to the article, it appears that Professor Trostowska, I really hope I'm saying that right, is working from a place of familiarity with the Jena Romantics. The Jena Romantics, or early Romantic movement, um, this, this movement, as I said before, I think I gave in the dates, 1795 to 1802. It follows the Schlegel brothers who were working in and publishing both Jena and Berlin. Um, it also includes, as I said before, Fichte. Uh, Schilling is involved in this, this work as well. Fichte and Schilling go off later and develop German idealism. This inspires Hegel. So this really becomes a lot of the, the sources of Hegelian philosophy. Trostowska uses some of these ideas drawn from the Anus school and also ideas drawn from the Frankfurt school influence. I'm not going to go into the, the Frankfurt school right now. Uh, suffice it to say, it's a, a 20th century, mid 20th century post Nazi party movement. Um, it's very much a, a movement of the left. I really don't agree with their thoughts. Um, however, it, it's all, they're also fairly complicated. They're, they deserve time spent on them. And since we don't have that time, we're not going to do it right now. But she does draw upon both the Frankfurt School and the, the Jena Romantic School in order to understand nostalgia. So jumping actually to her conclusion, the conclusion of her article, which I, I think is helpful, she lays out three theories of nostalgia. And these are her theories. Capitalist, romantic, and philosophical. The first, capitalism, or capitalist nostalgia, quote, issues from an economy of representation simulating lost past, end quote. Okay, so what, what capitalist nostalgia is doing then is having people look to the lost past and um, making purchases, consuming, based upon the, the representation of that past. The second, this is romantic nostalgia, is, quote, rooted in an economy of representation in which the past is experienced as irretrievable, end quote. The last is, quote, again, this is um, the philosophical nostalgia. So, quote, the sublation of romantic nostalgia into systematic thought, end quote. And so that then is this idea of the the irretrievable loss past, this, you know, thing we, we look back on and are, are in great pains because we can't access it again. Um, and this feeling, this kind of emotional regard for the past, she imagines as being swallowed up by systemic thinking and, and systematic thinking. I, I shouldn't say systemic, excuse me, systematic rather. 
would be that idea we mentioned earlier that Novalis was pushing against, which is placing all philosophical thought into kind of a single working system that explains the world. So in her article, she's more concerned with the capitalist nostalgia than the other two. She argues that capitalism saw nostalgia's potentiality for profit and gave nostalgia a new kind of value and a new kind of context. She writes that nostalgia reproduces rapidly through channels of symbolic economy. The opportunities that accompany consumer capitalism to construct their identity by sharing or giving access to personal history, representing some significant privileged connection with the past, the link holding the past together to us corrodes. Collective memory loses its hold on the imagination. So the consequence of this is that we remember an autonomous life that isn't always justified. Then this economic model requires that the sale of memories by saying and showing they are reproducible and transferable and that emotions, different from facts, as Novalis tells us, is sold as being apart or different from materialism and is actually a counterweight to materialism. The heritage industry allows us to think the past figures are present, are with us today. And mass entertainment, not careful scholarship or archaeology, allows this concept of history to sprout in the present and to recognize us within history, the I within history. And so that's all very confusing. And what I mean by this is, and what I think she means by this, is that the idea or the desire to purchase the past, right, to find an emblem or symbol of the past that you can bring forward and make your own is what allows the past to be present in the present. It allows the past to exist and have purchase in our present life. And that it's this kind of consumer mentality uh, she would call it. I, I don't know if I would call it that, but I think she would. That allows this to happen. It isn't archaeology, right? It isn't a careful study of the facticity of a particular time and a particular people in a particular place. Rather, it's this sort of emotional life, this emotional reality. Remember, it's thought and feeling, right, that make up the eye through history, as Novalis tells us. Here we have um, that split again. And it's kind of the emotion that the heritage industry, this, this industry that is kind of selling back the history of maybe a nation, for example. We see this in Britain, where the heritage industry uh, via the BBC sort of sells these mini-series back to us about England in the era of Jane Austen or, you know, in the era of Elizabeth II or Henry VIII, whatever. Um, and that these kind of emotional ties are what allows kind of history to, to come alive for us because we are looking back into the past for those kind of emotional realities. So now let's try and bring in Churstowska's concept of romantic nostalgia more into this conversation. Um, I want to share with you an extended quote and go through it. So here we go. Quote, Nostalgia in its uncompromised form may romanticize its object, 
But this romanticization is not synonymous with physical comfort, psychological security and moral hygiene, beauty and contentment. Freud saw the house as a symbol of quiescence, of being unborn. And this is her quoting Freud, quote, a substitute for the womb, one's first dwelling, probably still longed for, where one was safe and felt so comfortable, end quote. Back to her. Yet nostalgia is not a longing to return to this safe house, but to home as a sense of incubation, a singular knot of the unmade decisions of excitement as the flowering of alternatives, of reversible mistakes, of preparations for departure. Thus the past is reimagined along with the past's uncertainty about the future, as well as the thrill arising from that precariousness and from the relative remoteness of death, that relative to now, or now, relative to then. A past exerts a pull on us because it is an open door to real and imagined possibilities, or, in the case of a past, we either were not alive or have not lived to see, to historical relalia that to us, nonetheless, signify the unexplored and that have since become defunct. Nostalgia involves, then, a departure from the definite past for the indefinite. End quote. Nostalgia rehearses or relives again the past, but it also seeks to destroy or rewrite it. For Tchaikovsky, she sees the, the peddling of affective attachment, this, this kind of nostalgia industry, heritage industry maybe, as a way in which capitalist nostalgia uses attachment to sell back the past and, and kind of reinforcing this cycle, leading to the history that appears to be more and more uh, contemporaneous and more and more controllable. And so you, know, you could see that within the quote that um, it makes the past always present. It makes it contemporaneous because we're always kind of in purchasing it and we're always setting it to our own value. And it's not, as she's saying, a longing to return to the safe home, um, but a place where decisions have not yet been made. Um, as a place where alternative realities can be imagined, where reversible mistakes, so you could, you could change the errors of the past, that the past is reimagined as a sort of future, as something that we can alter, that we can change, and also allows us kind of to, to push off death. I don't think we need to go into that. Um, but the, the point ends up being that by bringing the past into the present, the past then becomes as indefinite as the future. Because if we're experiencing the past in the present, then we're experiencing the past as the present, which is something that is unfolding in an indefinite way. Now she says here that you know this allows you to put off death, which is true. It allows you to correct mistakes as well. And it creates this kind of, um, again, as I said before, this illusion of control. Now this, of course, relates to the Back to the Future trilogy, especially Back to the Future Part 3, because we can see the past, this Wild West, 
and only as a simulacra that bears no resemblance to the past that was in 1885. And I think the book, The Not-So-Wild Wild West, captures this perfectly. And we read in this book, I don't remember the name of the authors off the top of my head, my apologies to them, but we see in this book the uh, recognition that the past was, that the, excuse me, that the West was pretty calm, pretty tame, that shootouts were the rarity, not the norm. But in Back to the Future Part 3, the the film is kind of selling our sense of nostalgia for the Wild West, not of the actual West, but the Wild West that the Hollywood industry has created. This is the Wild West of Howard Hawks, of Sergio Leone, of John Ford. It allows the characters of this, this Hollywood West, the West that was, or the West that never was, and offers our offers the modern audiences a past that is comfortable, that they're, they're familiar with, and a past that they can control, that they can interact with, that they can shape, um, that they can bring into the present. And for the characters in Back to the Future 3, for Marty and for Doc, they actually can do this. They bring the past into the present. 1885, for most of Back to the Future Part 3, is the present tense for Marty and Doc, and they can do with it what they feel. There are certain challenges, um, Mad Dog Tannen being the most uh, <laughs> the most difficult, also getting the, the car up to 88 miles an hour, but the past becomes a new sort of present that they can shape. And for us, the past is something that we can shape via participation in Hollywood films by purchasing these great westerns of the past. Now in the next portion of her essay, we begin to see some of the troubles with that, right? This idea of capturing, smothering, recreating the past. Uh, she brings up Walter Benjamin's ideas of replication in order to, to start off this analysis of some of the problems. Um, Walter Benjamin is a also a Frankfurt School, an older Frankfurt School member, and um, a, a German who I believe emigrated to America and worked there. His dates are July 15th, 1892, and he died on September 26th, 1940. And Benjamin's idea of replication is that with the coming of photography and then later film, we can uh, replicate artworks, make infinite copies of them, and distribute them. And this sort of erodes or fails to capture what he calls the aura of an artwork, which is sort of the, the special individual quality of an artwork that has kind of what he calls cult value, which I'm not going to go into now because... This tree has enough branches. But with regard to, to this essay, then, the, the replicability of photography can allow the past to be reprinted and sold. And we can sell replicas of the past or captures of the past via film, via photography. Um, so then we have something that can attach to a product to help sell the product so we can we can take the past into the camera and then sell it, but that allows the past to be 
shaped and romanticized, right? So we think of the past then within this romantic lens, we kind of pave over the troubling aspects of it because it can be shaped or narrativized the way we like. The future remains this kind of scientific and pragmatic unknown. And when we bring the dynamic present back with us to the past, the future, even in its unknown status, invades the past and smothers it out and it makes it part of this narrative and it eliminates its scars, as she says. And so the scars, the, the awkwardnesses of the past, the, unjust, the injustices of the past, those things that don't fit the narrative are kind of eliminated by the invasion of the past with the present, right? With the way the present invades the past, the way it does in Back to the Future Part 3 where you get a romanticized view of the Old West sponsored by people from the present going to the past. And we could even think of this in a, in a meta context. Um, Zemeckis and Bob Gall going to 1885 in the present and capturing a past, right, a version of the past that fits a kind of more romanticized narrative. So modern nostalgia is a term she digs into next. Here she says what it is, what modern nostalgia is, is a fear that the present is being ripped away from or drained of meaning, and that different ways of privately recalling the past exist in contrast to public notions of time. This private relationship sponsors two different responses, an anxiety that the past is kind of linear and irretrievable, and therefore closed to interpretive recovery, but on the other hand, the past can reveal to us to be within history, which is what Novalis saw. And therefore, we can be optimistic about the future since we can see ourselves as kind of still connected to the past and maybe even still shaping it. This split in forecasting the past onto the future is revealed in the difference of tones in Back to the Future Part 3 and this week's picture, The Terminator. And so let's go through that in, in the context of those films. If we have a private relationship with the past, um, that we're looking always into the past and not really living in the present, to use that cliche, then what we have either is that the past is not something that we can get at, that it's this this ideal, this romanticized ideal. Remember, the scars are kind of covered up at this point. And we, we can't recover it, right? We can't get back to it. We can't interpret it. We can't make it the present. It's this romanticized thing that we've romanticized, but we've also isolated from us, right? And so we can see this a little bit in the Terminator, I would say, where the tone is kind of one of anxiety and fear. Now, the, the irony here, of course, is that The Terminator is also a time-traveling movie. And so therefore the past is literally recoverable at that point. Kyle Reese, our main male character, can actually go into the past and recover it. However, the past he goes back to is sort of structured around his present. The present tense of Kyle Reese, which I believe is 2029, 
in Los Angeles is that the world is ended, the world is destroyed, and the past has to be maintained in order to prevent absolute apocalypse. That the the humans have won in the end, the kind of surplus of humans that have survived, have fought hard, have won, and that the past will lead irrevocably to uh, a kind of absolute damnable present, right? And it's damnable if the Terminator wins or if the Terminator doesn't win, because the best you can hope for is that John Connor is born and then he can save a small group of humans that survive the apocalypse. This changes in T2, but in the first Terminator film, apocalypse is unavoidable. And so the, the movie has a much grim, much more grim view of history as something that is kind of marching forward. The storm is coming. While Back to the Future Part 3, history is not yet written. Now, I know they say that in The Terminator 2. Uh, you know, they, they say that in both of these films. But the spirit, I think, is more clearly alive in Back to the Future Part 3, where we can go back to the past, we can change anything about ourselves, we can create a kind of ideal future, we can make Marty's parents ideal parents, we can make Marty's life an ideal life, we can go to the past and find Doc, the, the perfect wife for Doc. Um, the future can join with the past and then shape the present. However, for her, time travel does not allow us to perform or enjoy nostalgia better, but rather it desecrates those images of nostalgia. And she mentions time travel. And I think the her, her mention of time travel is not exactly the fictitious idea of time travel that we're seeing in these two films. Um, it's sort of the imagining of time travel. But the the idea of time travel or the relevance of time travel might be the fact that the culture is uncomfortable with its own historicity. So when you see these movies that depict time travel, she thinks that shows a culture that's that's a little uncomfortable with its history and how kind of history is defining it. And it's uncomfortable with its evolution throughout history. You get this corrective instinct in time travel films, especially in Back to the Future trilogy, the Back to the Future trilogy. You also see it in The Terminator, though where it's not so much um, the good guys are making the correction, it's the bad guys who want to quote-unquote correct the birth of John Connor, and the good guys have to kind of preserve it. But this corrective instinct wants to reject nostalgia for a better product, what you would call a, quote, convergence of nostalgia and consumerism, end quote. And so what we have there is a really interesting note to end on, because... As we were saying just before, the past can can reveal to be within history and allow us to be optimistic about the future. Um, here, what we have is time travel is brought into the equation. And when it is, it reflects an anxiety about the present, about our own history and our present relationship to this history. And so what we want to do is then, according to her, consume a better 
product. So the, the nostalgia of the past, even with its smoothed out scars, is something that you know can be fixed up, can be made into a better product. And I think what we see as a major thread throughout this article is this idea of nostalgia as corrective. Nostalgia not as the facticity, the, the factual element, the thinking element that Navalis talked about, but nostalgia as this kind of way of recapturing the past, this way of dealing with this anxiety about where we're going, this anxiety about our own history, even an anxiety about death, and that the time travel film then allows us the consumerist fantasy of producing a better product by having this kind of nostalgic reflection on the past going back there vis-a-vis the, the time travel mechanism of these films and then restructuring and remaking the past so that it's more comfortable, that it doesn't violate our concepts of history, um, that it doesn't violate our concepts of ourselves, and it also gives us a present that can inform our future. Okay, so now we're going to connect some of these ideas to Baudrillard, that uh, some of these ideas that we brought up in the last episode, and bring it forward. Unfortunately, I do think we're going to have to get to those issues a little later on in the next week's B-side, and so I will see you then. <laughs>